Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So we are starting a brand new book today. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews. Tom, you already knew where you're at. All right. Uh, it starts off, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he has made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. As we study any book of the Bible, we want to leave here today knowing chapter 1 and 2 better than we walked in. And we just walk away with understanding. Here's The problem with that is Hebrews is so thick with meaning. Like what I just read is the Christian faith, like all of it. So almost every commentator I went through broke Hebrews down into like three or four verse sections, which maybe next time we do Hebrews, we'll do that. We're going to try to take it like the letter that it is. It's supposed to be consumed kind of in whole. So as we go through it, we'll definitely dig and look at the commentary of it, but we won't be going anywhere near as deep as some of the other people that I love to listen to that go through this. Um, And part of that is because I want to get through the Bible for the first time. So we want to keep moving on this. The author of Hebrews, this is the big thing with Hebrews. There's lots of things in the Bible where Christians get to argue with each other, and it's like a healthy argument. It's almost like God left us these beautiful arguments that we could have and think and use our brains. But the authorship of Hebrews is not given. So most of the epistles in the Bible, the author's name is right at the front. Uh, Hebrews, it is conspicuously left gone. So there's tons of guesses at the author. I'm going to blast through a bunch of them. Um... The earliest of the church writers really assumed that it was um, uh, either Paul or Barnabas. So the thing with Hebrews is that you just read the first few verses. You have to speak pretty good Greek to get this specific. So it had to be somebody who was fairly, not just that they could speak Greek, but that they could think Greek. Because a lot of the argument constructs in Hebrews are pretty unique to the New Testament, that they're put together in a Greek argument format. If you read Plato or Socrates and his, you know, what Plato wrote about Socrates uh, or the the Greek tragedies, you'll see arguments built in very similar ways to what we see in Hebrews. So it's odd that you have a book named Hebrews that's using Greek argument throughout it. So that gives you a really interesting kind of guess as to who the author is. Martin Luther thought it was Apollos who was a Greek speaker and was known for eloquence in Acts 18.24. Tertullian thought it was Barnabas, uh, but he gave absolutely no reason for it. He just said, this is Barnabas. And then you get Clement of Alexandria in the, is he in the first century or the second century? Said that it was both Paul and Luke writing it, and they wrote it in both the Hebrew and Greek, because there are Hebrew and Greek copies of Hebrews from the earliest that we can find them. So one of them wrote it in one language, and one of them wrote it in another language, and they had kind of a, a, a working together thing. 
The vast majority of scholars believe this is Paul's because they see Paul's writing start style here and his argument constructs. Um, we know that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it, that verse implies that the writer heard Jesus directly. Well, that's kind of a tough thing for Paul because was he hearing Jesus directly? Was he around after the resurrection? Because he was still killing Christians when Jesus came back after the resurrection and explained the Old Testament to the disciples. So 2 Peter 3.15 implies that Paul wrote a treatise-like document, but it doesn't say what the name of it was or what. It's just that there's a document out there that Paul wrote that, that Peter stands with. So uh, Peter, Paul had time in jail, which people like the idea that he's writing from jail, and he's working from Italy with Tim Timothy, who is a Greek speaker, um, as one of his helpers. So it could be Paul. Um, but then comes the question of why did Paul leave his name off this particular document when Paul writes every other epistle with his name right in front? So a couple theories around Paul doing that. One is that there was a period of three years after Paul was converted to Christianity that the disciples wanted nothing to do with him. So, and in that three years, he kind of goes back to his hometown and he studies the Bible for three years. So he puts in kind of that time before he goes out and preaches and it could be that he wrote this during that time, that it's a fairly early epistle and that he did not include his name on it because he wasn't really accepted by the disciples yet. And it could be that the writing of Hebrews and Peter's reaction to it is part of why Paul left, like that's part of how he got accepted into the church is they saw him writing this. So the Greek that gets used is extremely similar to Luke's Greek. That gets you back to Clement's uh, argument where it's both Luke and Paul. Luke and Paul traveled together, but it's got Peter's directness. Like the way in which it's spoken feels a lot like a Peter sermon. But then you get the other thing, like in the first four verses, there are seven attributes of Jesus that are given in the first four verses. So you get this numerology in Hebrews that feels a lot like the Matthew we just got done with, and you have the, the Hebrew audience that it's being written to, which feels a lot like the Gospel of Matthew. And not only that, it's got some of John's eloquence in it. So you wonder if this was a collaborative effort between a number of different early church leaders to try to get a singular message across. So is that good and confusing for everybody? So we can argue about it. That's, I think it's kind of fun that we get these things where we have to do a little sleuthing to try to figure it out. Um, but I'll, I'll leave that out there. Uh, we're doing it after Matthew because of the audience. Matthew spoke to the Jews primarily with his gospel, so we're going right into Hebrews because Hebrews speaks directly to the Jewish people or the Hebrews as to why Jesus is a better fulfillment of the law than the law itself. So when was it written? Hebrews 10.11 shows that the temple is still standing. If you flip forward there, there's a reference to the temple. Um, and in Hebrews 12.4, there doesn't seem to be an indication that there's rampant killing going on. So that puts Hebrews at a really early date, somewhere between 67 and 69 A.D., you know, roughly 30 years after Jesus was resurrected. So Timothy is known and established in the fellowship. That's where we get that it has to be kind of after 67 AD because he's referenced in Hebrews too. So you get this kind of fairly small window of time that we can date Hebrews, and we get the themes of Hebrews. The theme of Hebrew is why is Christianity better than Judaism? Why is it a superior faith to faith in, in, that the Jews had in the law. So it's an epistle uh, for this argument. It's a polemic epistle, polemic epistle. 
And to continue in the faith then is to not be discouraged. So it seems that the Christians are kind of for 30 years sharing Jesus with people, but they're running into where all the easy, easy converts have already come into the church. And now they're running into people that aren't coming around to the church. Very. In fact, they're getting pretty hard in their hearts about the faith. So a, a Hebrews is often giving messages of encouragement and it goes through a series of dangers that Christians can fall into as they've been living in the faith for a while. So it's a book for mature believers. And here's the things that can happen as a mature believer that will mess up your faith. So it goes through those throughout the book and gives a response to or how to overcome those things and establishes clearly that Jesus is the new high priest for the Hebrews, that he takes the role of Caiaphas. Only Caiaphas is long dead and gone at this point. Our goal is to learn this book so well we can teach it to other people. That We walk out of here and we feel like we're, we, we know what we need to know to read through this chapter and explain it to people and it, read through all the chapters. So we'll start in at verse 1. The book starts with the singular word God um, and it starts with the premise of God. As it's written to the Hebrews, there's no debate about whether or not there is a God. So for our modern day atheists, this is not a book that I would send them to right off the bat because it assumes there is a God. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers and the prophet. It also assumes that there is a God who has intervened with human history at points in time. Really, that narrows this down to a letter to the Hebrews because the Hebrews believe God has intervened at various times in various ways. It's what we call the Old Testament, a record of all those interventions. So God's communicated with humanity. He's did it through the burning bush, visions, dreams, Urim and Thummim, consequences of actions. Uh, throughout the history of the Hebrews, God has interacted with humanity. So any Old Testament study shows this, and Hebrews just starts with the premise, to the fathers by the prophets, again, nails this all the way down through the book of Malachi, uh, validating the Old Testament, that all of what's in the Old Testament is true, and it assumes that the, per the reader understands those things. Hebrews has fully 82 references to the Old Testament, and it is one of the most connected books to the Old Testament, second only to Matthew, when it comes to the number of references to the Old Testament. So this is part of the canonization of Hebrews, is that it ties intimately in with the Old Testament and answers a lot of the left questions from the Old Testament. Verse 2 says, in these last days, this is where the Mormons get the title Latter-day Saints. Um, we do not call ourselves Latter-day Saints in there, however... In these last days, we happen to be saints. Uh, Jesus never said when he was coming back, but he did say that this was a new age, an age of these saints. Uh, in these last days, we have also been spoken to, like with the Old Testament, but we've been spoken to through Jesus Christ. So the recording of his word in the gospel is absolutely one of the ways that God speaks to us. So this is why we read the, the New Testament, why we read the Gospels. And it says, we've spoken to us by his son. So again, this picks up right where Matthew left off, where he said, I'm going to leave you and I'll be back. And I leave you with this mission. Uh, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. And that's exactly where Hebrews kind of picks up. And, and it says, he has appointed heir of all things. So Jesus is king. He is heir. He's Lord of all. Exactly where Matthew left off in 28 verse 18. And he picks up from there. Verse, uh, then it says, through whom he made the worlds, which is not just the attribution of heir or king. It's also the attribution of creator and God. Or the word worlds there is, is in the Greek is aeon, 
or ages, universe, it's both time and space. He's the God of all time and space in the universe. And, and the word there is worlds. That doesn't mean there's a multiverse out there, by the way. This is, that doesn't mean there's extra dimensions. It means that Jesus is in charge of all dimensions. And there's a purpose for these things. It connects to the creation that's being done through Jesus as he made the worlds in the past tense and he's sustaining those worlds in the present tense. See what this gets pretty heady pretty quick? Okay, so that's the second attribute of Jesus. He's heir, he's creator. Um, the creator piece sounds a lot like the beginning of John, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by him. Without him, not, not anything was made that was made. Hebrews says, through him he has made the worlds. So you get some of this language that comes from John, some of it from Matthew, almost like they're trying to tie together the Gospels into one kind of conclusive statement. Then in verse 3 it says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, again, that idea of illumination, John uh, 1 verse 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we get this kind of tied in too. Again, connecting to the Gospels, connecting to the Old Testament, this idea of illumination is the idea of sight or seeing. And this, I think, is a really neat idea. Brightness there, the word is apogasma, which is the idea of a radiation from a light source. It's the visible part of light. So where there's a light bulb right there, we're not actually seeing the light bulb. We're seeing the rays that come off the light bulb. But we call them both light bulb, right? We call them both light. And that's the word for apogasma, if I'm saying that right. It's the visible part of a light. But it's not necessarily the light itself. This comes right from the Greek. This kind of a word is why we think this was a Greek-thinking person. So they, that's what they would call the logos. The logos wasn't the thing itself, but it was the truth that emanated from the thing. Right? So, and we won't get too far into, you know, Socrates thinking of the cave and that sort of thing, but life or a visibility of life that's manifested from God is called Jesus. So, where we would say light bulb and light wave, we could also say God and Jesus and put them in the same slots. Jesus is the emanation of God, they're both the same being. God decided in the beginning that he would be knowable to his creation. So God decided, let there be light. And that light was his own radiation spreading out to where humans could never see God, but they could see the light that radiates from God. And Jesus is a perfect version of that light. And it goes on, the express image of his person. He's a perfect image of God. He's the God person or the Godhead. So in the same way that we can recognize a singer by their vocal cords, and we just hear the voice and we, go and we know who the singer is, or when somebody talks, the same way we can read a book and recognize the writing style of the writer, or we can, if, you, if you have an ear for it, you can hear a guitar player and identify who's playing that guitar. In the same way, we can see Jesus and identify who God is because they're the same being. Jesus is the emanation of God. Again, this gets super thick. You could do a whole sermon just on those pieces right there. Um, the power then is that Jesus is exactly God to us or what they called in the Latin imagio dios. He's the image of God, the thing that we can see. And that comes right from verse 3, the expressed image of his person. And the fifth attribute of Jesus, upholding all things by the word of his power. He's also the sustainer. 
right? So the, the word there in the Greek is to bring or to bear for upholding. He actually holds everything up. He sustains all of existence. So when Jesus was here, he showed power over earth. He showed power over heaven. He showed power over our health, over water. He stopped the storm, life and death. He rose Lazarus and himself. Um, you can just read any of the Gospels. Jesus showed that his word was power over all things on heaven and earth. That power allows him to take anybody they want into their family. Because he's head of everything, he can choose to include people in his household. He can adopt anyone. And that includes us, thankfully. And then it says, when he had, when he had by himself purged our sins. This is just like, this is the intro to remember, right? Jesus is the partner of our sins, too. He falls into that role. So, so far, he's the king, creator, illuminator, sustainer, image of God, and now he's the partner of sin. He himself is the same language we saw back in Genesis with Abraham. When, um, when Abraham knows that God will, Genesis 22, verse 8, God will provide himself for the lamb of the burnt offering. John 1, 36. And looking at Jesus, he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus made himself, he himself, the Lamb of God. So that light that emanates, the light that we see from God being Jesus, then became the Lamb of God and became the sacrifice for us too. Again, this is really thick. For kids, I would just say Jesus loves you and he died for your sins. In Hebrews, we get the grown-up version of that. Jesus becomes the replacement of 2,500 years of sacrificial offerings by the Jews. And he's a better replacement. He's, he's one that doesn't need to be repeated over and over and over again. And then you get the seventh attribute of Jesus, that he sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. So this is after his resurrection. The right hand is a position of honor and power. So for any king, their right hand, you would even call them the hand, the right hand of the king was the one that did things for the king. So the king on a chessboard doesn't move around very much, but the pieces around the king move all over the place. The hand of the king would go anywhere and everywhere to do what he needed to do, like a bishop or a queen, the hand of the king. So this right hand becomes an extremely powerful position, and Jesus sits there. The theme of right hand has been throughout the Bible. And the New Testament, the early believers picked up on this idea of Jesus' right hand. He's the acting agent of God. So he's not just a light that emanates, but when he hits something, things happen. And there's an action that happens when Jesus gets involved. He's a great high priest, Hebrews 4.14, but he's also this right hand of God as a high priest. So that pulls a conclusion from both the Gospels of Luke and Mark. So Mark, I'll read the Mark version of it. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He took his position as the acting agent of God. So likely, Mark and Luke took that phrase from Stephen as he was being stoned. So that might be the first chronological reference, Acts 7, 456. Stephen says, look, I see the heavens opened and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So that idea of Jesus is actually in that position of power. So the one that enacts the justice of the Godhead is the same hand that has interceded for humanity and becomes the propitiation for sin. So if God will administer justice on this earth, 
yet save certain people from the justice. It's both Jesus and Jesus that do those things. This is kind of, Peter uses this language too. Again, this is where I get the idea that Hebrews is kind of brought together by multiple people. 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So he's king, creator, illuminator, the image itself, the sustainer and the pardoner, and he's God himself. Like, that's how Hebrews starts out. Any questions about Jesus? Do we know who Jesus was? So it assumes that we've read a gospel and we know exactly who Jesus is. And it just summarizes it all. It's amazing. Psalm 48.10, David is speaking with the Holy Spirit coming through his writing. And he writes, According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Jesus is the deliverer of righteousness to the earth. So you'd say, but Jesus hasn't come and delivered that righteousness quite yet. He's just delivered salvation so far. And that's where you get into the uh, where we're headed with Hebrews is that Jesus is going to return and he will bring justice when he does. And he, he's coming a second time. Verse 4 then says and concludes, he having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So Jesus wasn't just a wise sage or a prophet. And one of the heresies going around the early church was kind of this idea that Jesus was just a spirit or an angel that came to earth. He wasn't flesh and he wasn't human. That's an odd thing to, to assume. Like normally we would see heresies like, well, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. But oddly enough, in the first hundred years, that wasn't even an argument. And part of that is because so many people saw him get crucified and raised. The only thing they could come up with to not accept Jesus then was, well, what we saw was actually an angel on the cross and therefore never really died. And, and then when he rose and everybody saw him, we were all seeing an angel. So the early people that were eyewitnesses had to interact with that idea. And we'll see Hebrews doing that in part. So when they say so much better in both kind and nature than an angel, they're saying Jesus was not an angel. He was something significantly more impressive than an angel. So God is always higher than angels, which is why at the beginning of Hebrews, they're associating Jesus with God. He's the right hand of God. He's the light that shines from God. He's the acting agent of God. And he's better than the angels because the angels just dispense the law. Jesus makes the law. He is the law. So it's kind of like having a, a bailiff in a courtroom, right? The judge is still superior to than the bailiff, and Jesus is still superior to the angels that might go out and administer justice. So angels being a key part of the Bible. So if we haven't talked about angels before, there's over 270 references to angels throughout the Bible. So there is this level of being that interacts with existence, that we don't always see and we don't always hear, but sometimes humans do see and hear angels. There are also demons that are at that same plane of existence. There's a spiritual battle at a foot. It's referenced throughout the Bible. When it says that Jesus became more than angels, that's not to say that he was less than angels beforehand, but for humans, when he was covering our sins and resurrecting, he became better than the angels in terms of how he interacts with us. Prior to the resurrection, he wasn't our salvation. After the resurrection, he is our salvation. And some people really struggle with that. He's not just a messenger at that point. He did more than bring a message, right? It's more than the Sermon on the Mount. 
it's the sacrifice that he gave. So he obtained, is another word, a more excellent name. Part of it is, before the New Testament, we didn't know the name of the Son of God, right? He's referenced as Messiah throughout the Old Testament. We never got his name. So it's not that Jesus didn't have a name before the New Testament. It's that we as humans didn't know his name before the New Testament. So I think it's important to understand verse 4 and not get too confused on that idea. It's not that Jesus changed in his nature, but what we know about Jesus became something different. What we know about his name has, has become or being obtained for humanity to know and understand. That makes sense? Okay. Um, so the more excellent name is that we would assume this is a good name. Uh, and the writer will expand on this idea, largely responding to angel worship that was starting to happen. Uh, he gives a lot of, so the rest of chapter one is citations that are making the argument that Jesus is more than an angel. And so the writer is just kind of going to flash through all of these different references. Uh, verse five, for to which the angels did he ever say, you are my son today I've begotten you. Really simply, when did God ever say to an angel, you're my son? Yet he says that to Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So there's something different there. In Revelation, God has presented or begotten something. And to be the son of something in the Old Testament or Jewish tradition means you're, at, you're equal with somebody. So when I say Grant is the son of Sean, it means he's my essence, he's my equal, right? And he is, he is, he is at some level the inheritor of who I am. So when I go away, Jesus, or Grant would fully inherit everything I have. Of course, we live in a modern America, so Grant, your Katie will also get an inheritance but she's a daughter of Sean. So, and that tradition really, I remember my grandparents talking like that. They would talk about other people in town and they'd say, oh, that's the son of so-and-so, which was supposed to explain what character the person had, who, what kind of essence they had, how they were raised. Because you know the parents, you know what their kids are going to be raised like. right? So there's that idea of, of God calling Jesus his son or his essence being sent out. Psalm 2-7, I will de- declare the decree the Lord has said to me, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. I've made my essence known or seen. And again, in Hebrews, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. That's in 2 Samuel seven fourteen. It was a promise that God made to David. And in one sense, he's talking about Solomon, but listen to how he words this. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he committed iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. And the, ar- the writer of Hebrews is arguing that's also about Jesus. That's a prophetic line, right? And then as Jesus is whipped, those stripes are being put on his back. Hebrews verse 6, it says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. That's from Psalm 97, 7. Why would angels worship something that's equal to them? Again, we're arguing against the idea that Jesus was an angel. That would never happen. So why, why would that be? Firstborn is the, not necessarily the biological first. David wasn't the firstborn of Jesse. Um, but the firstborn is the one that will inherit the household. So if Jesus is fully the essence of God and will inherit the household, Psalm 97.7, the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews is arguing that's a prophetic line too. Verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? That's from Psalm 104.4. The angels minister to Jesus. So Jesus is then higher than them. 
In chapter 2, he's going to make the opposite argument. Jesus became lower than the angels when he incarnated. But he's trying to say that Jesus is essentially a different being than humans or angels. Then in verse 8, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So this is the big one. God says to the Son, O God, did you catch that? I'll read it again. But to the Son, he, that's God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Why would God say to anyone else, O God, unless he's talking to himself? He's talking to his own emanation. It's the light bulb saying to the light beam, you are shining out my glory, but you are me. And there's no distinction or difference there. This is where you, this is where, this is frankly where people that believe in a trinity get in trouble with like the seventh, is it the Jehovah's Witnesses? They're the seventh day, or one of the groups that doesn't believe that there's a trinity. This is where we get in trouble with that. The Bible clearly has, and this is what Hebrews is arguing. God called this being, this Messiah, God. And if God calls him God, then he must be God. Otherwise, you got a real brain teaser to work out. The idea of a scepter there in verse 8 is full power or rule or authority. So God is himself the full ruler and authority, and his emanation is also the full ruler and authority. They're not separate. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companies. One of the ways we'll identify God is gladness. He's happy. There's a joy to him. This is why I really love portrayals of Jesus where he's laughing and he's happy. He was someone that people fell in love with. And you don't fall in love with selfish people. You fall in love with people that love you and care about you and they're glad about it. Psalm 45, 6 goes with verse 9. That's what, again, it's just quote, 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 quote. They're citing their sources here as to making the building their argument, which is a very Greek way of arguing things. God, your God, this is a total study in the Trinity. Only We only have a, a, a biety right now. There's God and there's Jesus. We'll get to the Holy Spirit in a little bit. These verses introduce this idea to the Christian church. This is the argument of Hebrews, at least at the opening. When God anointed you with the oil of gladness, we have this emanation of God that is identified by the fact that it's happy. And as we follow Jesus, we also become happy. Like it's this idea. And then in verse 10, it just keeps going. Again, you could see where you could stop on these ideas, any one of them, and do a whole sermon on it, right? And trace it through the whole Bible and pull it out. Verse 10, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. Psalm 102.25. That's an interesting argument to throw in there too. That psalm says that God has years. There will be years at which he's on the earth. And they will, and they will not fail and that they'll be eternal. Getting the sense that Hebrews is making a thesis argument here? Like this is just the opening salvo? So they're inviting people with chapter 1 to go do their Bible study. You can't get through these verses without looking up all the Psalms and find, because they're quoting everything. And Hebrews is just bringing in the reader saying, read this in the Old Testament. It says it again and again and again. God refers to the Messiah as himself. He, he, he notes the attributes of that Messiah being the same attributes that were in verses 1 through 4. Maker, creator, illuminator, himself, savior, 
Then it gets to verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool? He doesn't say that to angels. He says that to himself. He's creator. He's self-existing. He's eternal. He's powerful. He's immutable. He's victorious. And specifically, he will rule over the angels. This being. So the psalm he's quoting in verse 13 is Psalm 110. The very first verse of Psalm 110, again, if you're doing your homework on this, this is what you would find. Psalm 110 starts off with, the Lord said to my Lord. (laughs) So it's got this self-referential beginning to it. And experts in the scriptures would recognize that verse coming from 110 and they'd recognize that intro to to Psalm 110. And then the Hebrews finishes, you always save your best citation till last. Nobody sits next to God. God is holy and unique And all creation is too busy worshiping and bowing God. But listen to this, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Servants don't sit down when they're serving. So when God says that the Messiah will sit down at his right hand, he's not talking about a servant. He's talking about his strength and his power. He's talking about himself because he's holy and unique God. So... The only way to resolve this is that the Messiah, the Son of God, is actually God. He's not an angel. Angels don't govern. They don't rule. They don't hold scepters. They are messengers, very powerful messengers, but they're messengers. Now they minister to those who will inherit salvation. That's interesting. Angels will actually serve the people that are going to be saved. There will be a point in a new age where angels actually work for humans, those who accept Jesus as their Savior. But the, it won't be there. John 17, 11, um, we see the purpose of what we're made for is to be kept from the world's temptations, to have joy, the gladness of God, and John 17, 17, to be sanctified. That's the ministry of the angels, to help us be kept from world temptations, to help bring us joy, and to help us to be sanctified. That's the work of the saints. Okay. Again, you get to the books like Hebrews and the theology is just crazy. We all come from different theological backgrounds. Please write down and keep, because I'm thinking lunch is going to be a lot of fun today, right? We want to unpack all of these ideas, but that's how fast we're going to go through them. And you feel like you're leaving things behind when you do that. But I want to go on to chapter two because it starts with a therefore. What's the whole point of what they're writing in chapter one? So we get therefore, so we ask why it's there, and it's there because chapter 1, Jesus is more than an angel. So we build on that principle that Jesus is God, he's more than an angel, and this long history of Israel has always been one of drifting away or backsliding. So you go through the Old Testament, you have to ask, why does Israel keep falling away from God? So from the Garden of Eden, through Moses, through the prophets, Hebrews is then written to those people that believe in Jesus as Messiah and is addressing how they fall away from or fade away just like the Jews have for 5,000 years. In other words, Hebrews is written to us. It's written to Christians. You can get saved and then fall away from the blessings of Christ. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We have to pay attention. Or we're going to drift away just like the Jewish people did. Frankly, for the last 2,000 years, The history of the Christian church is a history of 
the church growing and then fading away, and then a new seed being planted in the church growing and then fading away. And in time, every movement of the Christian church has grown in strength and in numbers, and then they've faded away from their first love. And it happens over and over and over again. And Hebrews is the warning against that. So if you accept chapter 1, that Jesus is God, we have to have more earnest heed. Jesus' words then take precedent. We have to actually learn them and pay attention to them. They deserve attention because Jesus is more than an angel. And if angels have always told the truth and they've always been 100% accurate, how much more so are the words of Jesus? And how much more can we put our faith in them? It says we've heard. That's an interesting reference. It dates Hebrews earlier. They've heard being an audible sense of hearing in the Greek. Now we hear by the word of God. They're assuming that the people they're writing to have actually heard Jesus themselves. So this is, uh, you know, fairly early advice. To heed something is not just to hear it with the ear. It's a different Greek word. So when we pay more earnest heed, it's not just to hear it, but to do it. You can listen to something and not do it, but you can't heed something and not do it. You have to hear it and then do it. So to heed something is to act on the advice that you're given. We've heard audibly, and, and we, we may heed it, or we may drift away is the other option in verse 1. So drifting away. If we're hearing and not doing, we're drifting. It's just that simple. If we're not even hearing the word, then you're probably drifting. <laughs> like you, it, you, you've missed a key step there. And that's one of our concerns, why we're doing the Bible study we're doing. I want to actually know what's in the Bible, word for word, because I can't heed something I've never heard, even the tough stuff. So we're going to get seven, there were seven divine identities of Jesus. There are going to be six dangers for Christians throughout this book. Again, this is where you think Matthew had to be involved in this stuff, because it's just laced in here. In chapter two, we're going to get drifting away. In chapter three, we're going to get doubting. In chapter 5, we're going to get dull hearing. In chapter 6, we're going to get departing. In chapter 10, we're going to get despising. And in chapter 12, we're going to get denying. So he's going to go through six different things that can happen to Christians over time. Six different problems that happen. So the first one is drifting away. It's to lose direction by not pursuing something. If you're not actively doing Jesus stuff, you are drifting away. So it's like trying to drive a car without holding the wheel. Or when you drive sleepy, you stay on the road, but then you kind of fall asleep. What's actually happening is you're developing inaction, and that inaction causes you to go off the road. You fall asleep, you stop driving. And I think that's the nature of Hebrews as we're going to go into this chapter and look at drifting away. The drifting away is actually to not be active in our faith. It's to hear it and then just do nothing. To drift is to go in a direction without doing the direction. So it's like when we breathe or drink or trip or fall, we're moving in a direction, but we didn't intend to go there. We don't try to fall. You just stop being active about where you put your feet. You stop actively walking. So drifting is the absence of doing something. Like light is the absence of darkness, or darkness is the absence of light. So what do we have to do to be lost? Absolutely nothing. What do we have to do to backslide? Nothing. It's to not do faith is to be backsliding. Stop doing God's stuff. Really easy to do that. Get caught up with the concerns of the world, and you will be backsliding. Verse 2, 
For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how then shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? That's the idea. If the angels nailed it, you know, they nailed it through all over the place. Like they gave judgment to Lot, they gave execution at Passover in Egypt. They brought messages to Hezekiah. They even brought messages to Balaam and Balaam's donkey. Like, like we see God speaking through messengers all the time. An angel appeared to Mary herself and said, you're going to have God's son. So angels come with all these messages and they've never been wrong. So the law of the Old Testament was extremely demanding. It was rigorous. It was expected that they followed it and it was punished when it wasn't followed. So it will be at the end of the age, Matthew 13, 49. The angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. The angels aren't going away. They're coming back. And when they come back, they're going to be separating those that follow Jesus and those that don't. There's two directions we go. How should we escape so, so great a salvation? To ne neglect something there is to be amused by or to treat something lightly. It's to not give something weight. Yeah, Jesus saved me from my sins, but then you treat it lightly, like it's not a big deal. And you say, well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And they say, I'm, or what do you say when you're going to get to heaven? And they say, I say, I'm going to heaven. And they make light of it. And that's an indication of someone who hasn't taken salvation seriously. They might understand it, but they don't give any weight to it. So yeah, Jesus saved me from my sins, but no, that doesn't affect my life. It doesn't have anything to do with me. So they're not heeding it. Jesus has come as God. Jesus as God has come himself. And if we ignore him, there, the point of verse two is there's no backup plan. That's the plan. And you don't get to make up your own religion to have other options in that. Matthew 21, 33. And just this parable, I think, really fits. I'm going to add this in. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and <laughs> built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers that went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to his vine dressers so they might receive its fruit. The vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And then he sent other servants, more than the first, this would be the angels, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come and let us seize, kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those vine dressers? If you don't buy Jesus, the son of God himself, what, what do you have left to lean on? You're, there's a certain hopelessness in verse 2. And again, they, using the term heir from that parable, Hebrews brings the term heir right into this. Jesus is the heir of God. So great a messenger that we have in Jesus himself, the son, the final one, the next visit from God is going to be one of judgment. So Hebrews sets these up and gives these indications of what we're doing there. When we think something's great, we attend to it. If we don't think something's special, we don't even treat it as a gift, we don't do anything with it. Think of what we value. You know, we make glass cases with lights and we put showrooms together. When we honor something, we put security around it, you know, like little gates in the museum that crash down around art pieces. When something is great, we, 
set it up and make it precious. We worship it. So when Jesus came and gave this gift of salvation, it should be something that we see as great or wonderful. And that's the language that gets used in verse 2. As we saw in chapter 1, God has been saying all of this in the Old Testament, and now he's saying it in the New Testament too. Same message. It's always been plan A that the Son would come. And he's confirmed to us in verse 3. He's a warning of drifting even to those who heard and accepted. Jesus spoke it, then he confirmed it to us and everyone that heard. So to say that you're the son of God is lunacy. Like if any human says that, to actually be the son of God is divinity. And that's the difference with Jesus. He's special. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Jesus came as God, incarnated himself, and God backed it all up with signs and wonders. That's what Jesus was doing throughout the Gospels. And the the word also is in there. God also bears witness. In addition to the resurrection, there were plenty of things that gave credence to Jesus as God prior to the resurrection. God continues to move and do things. Mark 16, 17, as he said, both above the angels and and here, the most accessible of messengers that we've ever had. God's the best of the messengers, and he's still above the angels. The signs and wonders, again, could do a whole sermon series on this, the bear witness to these things, as do the miracles and gifts. They all bear witness to God. So one of the big questions for us as Christians is, well, do we still have signs and wonders and miracles and gifts? Do they still exist, or do they go away with Jesus? This divides entire denominations of the church. Are there still these things? So I want to just go through the four so we know what they are. And we can actually then talk about this. Signs is is sanion in the Greek. A sign is a distinguishing mark or something that makes a person stand out. In the earthly sense, this would be something you put on your head or your forehead or something you wear around your wrist. It'd be something that people see. It's a sign. And, And it can't be missed when someone looks at you. They see you and that's what they see. They see a sign. So this is, I think these go in order, really. A sign of God's presence to a Christian is stuff we see all the time. We can't look at the world and not see God working in the world around us. So mature believers, they see God at work all the time, right? They'll say, oh, that was, was, God just put us in the right place at the right time and I met just the right person. I ran into this person on the airplane And it was somebody I knew from 40 years ago and we actually still recognized each other. It was great. To not see that as a divinely made connection is to not recognize a sign. It means you're not looking if you don't see that. So God gives all these little coincidences, moments, and it's a steady daily diet of these things. Oh, I was feeling down and I got a text from one of my friends saying, don't feel down. I'm praying for you right now. Like, I didn't, how did that happen? And when you see hundreds of these things as a believer, you stop thinking they're coincidences anymore. But from the earthly sense, for people that aren't believers, they don't see any of that. You can tell it to them, they just look at you like you're nuts, right? Because they don't get it. Then you get to wonders. This is kind of a stage more. And, And again, only someone with complete mastery of Greek would know which words to put where these scale like they do. Wonders is teros. It's typically a heavenly or a supernatural event. Where signs are earthly instances, wonders are heavenly instances. Things that seem to be slightly supernatural just happened. 
and you got to kind of lock them down. So it's so strange you have to look. It's like a burning bush. You can't walk past it because the thing isn't burning up. Like there were bushes that burned in the desert. That happens. But the fact that it didn't burn up, that's a wonder. You have to stop and look at it because you're like, what just is going on right there? So when signs and wonders, signs are things that other people that you can't miss when you're looking. Wonders are things you just can't miss. They're stunning. They're, it's kind of a wow moment, right? And this is something that I think as believers, we may not see wonders every single day, but if you don't see them for years on end, you're not getting your vitamins, right? Where signs are your staple starches that you eat every day, wonders are things you should have a steady diet of, vegetables, minerals. It, maybe that's a bad metaphor. Then you get to miracles, dunamis. That's the root word for dynamite. So the words get bigger. They get more explosive. A miracle is something that has power and force attributed to it. Not a subtle, gentle. Like when Jesus fed the 5,000, I think that was a wonder, right? It just, people just kept pulling bread out of the basket. And there was clearly a heavenly influence to what just happened there, but it wasn't like dynamite, right? So when Jesus stopped the ocean from roaring and told the seas to be quiet, that was a miracle. That was this explosive exhibition of raw power of God, the parting of the Red Sea, right? The, the slaughter of the Assyrian army in front of the gates of Jerusalem, just raw exhibition of power, very rare, but amazing when you see it. So dunamis is the force that's attributed to God. It is supernatural, absolutely unexplainable, uh, and it's massive. You're blown away by it. And for believers, like we often read about miracles in the Bible, but there are believers since Christ, hundreds, thousands of them that have recognized miracles and seen things happen that they can't explain. So we, we then hear those stories, and as a body, we're supposed to share those with each other because they're a little more rare. They're like desserts, icing on the cake. And then you get to, interestingly enough, gifts, merismos. And in sequential order, these are the most impressive they're more impressive than a miracle. Remember Jesus said, they said, show us a sign. And Jesus says, if I showed you a sign, you still wouldn't believe. Remember that? The, seeing a miracle or a wonder or a sign doesn't cause belief to happen, but gifts do. And gifts are things that build the body of Christ. They actually change hearts. So a marismos is a separation or a distribution of something. So in the church, God amazingly divvies up gifts and talents amongst believers. And as you change churches, sometimes you'll notice this. At this church, you're the encourager and you help out at the door just lightening people's day as they walk in. But you move to this other church and you find that you're the evangelist in the group. Every body of Christ, when we travel the country, we love to visit other Calvaries because we call it church tourism. We just want to go visit it. And why I love doing it no matter how small or big the church is, if it's a healthy church, the gifts have been distributed. And you see, oh, there's the, there's the prayer warrior, there's the encourager, there's the person that hosts really well, there's the person that teaches, there's the person who works with kids, and those personalities come up because God distributes the gifts. And when other people see the body of Christ, they know that God's there because of how they love one another. They see the change in people because God gives us gifts as we become believers. And those changes become things that are clearly recognizable. So the gifts, marismos. Um, it's interesting how that happens. 
the gifts are kind of the meal itself, right? This well-balanced diet of all these other things. Signs, wonders, miracles, yeah, they're happening, but the gifts happening in the church, that's amazing. And it's what people are drawn into. People that are lost love to see communities of people that are found. And it's so compelling and convincing when you see a body of believers that are just joyful, they love one another, that you think, I want to be part of that community. And it draws people in. There's an interesting progression as you go signs, wonders, miracles, gifts, that those gifts are then at the end. Signs, wonders, and miracles happen, but then they're forgotten. Gifts happen over time. They happen every single week, all the time. You want to see what a body of Christ looks like, come see it. It's on display all the time. So therefore, it's greater than a miracle, which is an instance in time. Signs and wonders bear witness. And this is part of what we do. We're supposed to bear witness to all the world. And these gifts are part of the bearing of the witness. I know this is complex stuff. God uses broken believers to build healthy churches, and we get to witness that every single week. We get to look inside the work of God. It's a powerful thing to think about. If you're not a believer, you don't even see it. In fact, believers often think churches are just full of hypocrites, and sometimes they are. But then they translate that to all healthy church communities. Fabricating a gift, then, becomes a false witness, by definition. If the gifts are bearing witness, then to, to pretend you have a gift is a lie. It's a false witness. Right? So... Many signs and wonders, and Christians see so few of them today. One of the questions we have to ask is, where's, what's going on and how does this work? Right? So we should ask, why are we not seeing signs, signs, wonders, and miracles? Why do we not see gifts of the Spirit in our church body? If that's happening, that should drive us to that question. Because as believers, we do see these things. That's why we share them. If God, if this is God's witness, why do I not see God's witness? And there's a few reasons for that. Again, Hebrews is talking about drifting away. One of the reasons is drifting away. That's the topic here. One way to drift away is you're actually not there. You can't see signs, wonders, miracles, and the gifts of the Spirit if you show up every now and then. It has to be a faithful kind of, you have to be there to see things. Another way is that you're being passive with your faith. You're hearing the word and you're not doing it, which Hebrews has already brought up. Or you're not actually in fellowship with other Christians that are sold-out believers, right? And this is a tough thing to talk to people about because they say they go to church, but then they don't see or participate in any of this. They're with a group of people that have drifted away. Revelations goes through the churches, and there are churches that have drifted away. They've forgotten their first love. Which church is that? Ephesus? I love my wife. There's no promise ever made anywhere in the scriptures to lukewarm believers. None. Only people that are all in get to see the signs and wonders and miracles and be part of the gifts of the Spirit. It's got to be your whole life that's committed. It's harsh, but I'll read it for you. You don't have to trust me on this. Revelation 3.16. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's not a promise of good things. It's quite the opposite. So even though Hebrews is written to early Christians, it's writing to them with a warning about this. According to his own will, verse 4. 
That's not a human will. There's no amount of exertion or planning. We can't have a miracle tent revival meeting and plan miracles, right? I think it's almost humorous when Christians do that. We're going to have a healing session. Really? Is that God's will to have that healing session or do you want your tithe boxes full? And so you get this excuse for people to mock Christianity because they're doing things according to their will and not God's will. God will grace the church with these things when he chooses to, when he darn right chooses to. So sadly, we can't organize a miracle service, and and that's actually kind of silly. We can also water down miracles when it says according to his will. When we see signs everywhere and everything in human existence is a miracle, we're kind of watering down when we actually see those things. Right? Oh, that was a miracle, and that was a miracle. That food was so good. That was a miracle in my belly. We, and I think in our enthusiasm, we can water down the actual work of God when God's really doing a thing. Right? So, but on the other hand, like we give thanks to God in all things when it happens. So even, even earthly things, we can praise the Lord to know that he's in work in those things. The Bible then gives us a robust set of words here. That's a sign, a wonder, a miracle, or a gift. I think as the church, we should use those words because God gave them to us. Not everything's a miracle. Some things are signs. Not everything's a wonder. Some things are a gift, right? So when we see those things, we can use those terms and talk about them because Hebrews gives them those terms. But we first have to understand what they are. Verse 5. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjugation to angels. Angels won't be in charge in the world to come. But one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or son of man that you take care of him? Psalm 8. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So Jesus is also lower than the angels. Now are we confused? He's above the angels, but he's also lower than the angels. This is a paradox in the Christian faith, right? So he's, he's humbled himself. Even though he's greater than angels, he's humbled himself below angels. And yet he will have all things crowned. He will be crowned with glory and honor, and he will have all things in being subject under his feet. So what Hebrews is arguing is that what Psalm 8 is talking about is that Jesus would be incarnated as a human, which is a human is lower than an angel, and he's fully human. So it's not 1% God and 99% human or wherever you want to draw that line. It's fully God, chapter 1, fully human, chapter 2. Paradox for the rest of eternity. We get to figure that out. So he's lower than the angels. He's been incarnated. I'll keep going. For in that he put all in subject, subjection under him, He left nothing that is not put under him. He's in total authority, end of Matthew. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. There are parts of this eternity and existence that we can't see that are under Jesus, like angels. He will have authority over demons to to burn them in the lake of fire. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Verse 9 tells us why he came to earth. So you can read the gospel and then try to sort out, well, why did this have to happen? Why did Jesus need to come to earth as a human being? And, And Hebrews gives us the answer. He had to taste death. For it was fitting for him 
for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It's not that Jesus wasn't perfect before. It's that as Jesus said it, he fulfilled the law. He's perfected, perfected or completed the plan of God. So Jesus' humiliation in, in verse 10 gives us, we got four reasons why Jesus was humbled to a human form. It brings glory. So now God's actually much bigger God because he's a God that can become a human. So he's a more powerful God than he was before. Roots in public human history, like now he's in our record books, right? It's not some divine moment that some human recounts for somebody. He didn't hide in a room and get golden tablets, right? He made part of our common public history, Jesus Christ. Every other religion happened in some secret room. Christianity happened out in the open with hundreds of people to witness it. it became part of our history. The sun darkened all over the planet. I'll get those notes for you, Bonnie. It creates affinity with humanity. We have a Savior who knows what we've been through. Again, if, if God judges humanity without ever being a human, I don't know if that's a just judge. But because he's been a human, he is a just judge. And then four, it manifests the purest form of love, which Jesus says is sacrifice. What greater love has a man than he lays down his life for his friend? If God's a God of love and he's never exhibited the highest form of love, then is he really the God of love? So, glory, history, affinity, sacrifice. Four reasons. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, who are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The captain there is Archagos, a leader, a causal agent of something. Acts 13.15 uses the word prince. He is the leader or the captain. He's the one that gives the commands. Perfect in there is teleosi, which is to consummate or finish something. Like the last jigsaw piece in a puzzle. It wasn't that it wasn't a jigsaw piece before. It's that when it clicks into place, now you can see the whole picture. And that was Jesus. He just finished the whole picture of the Old Testament. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Well, that's interesting. This being Jesus, who is higher than all the angels, at one with God, and humbled himself to be at one with humans, calls humans brothers. He doesn't call the angels brothers. He calls us brothers and sisters. How, how humbling is that? We're not even there. So Jesus had to be human in order to call us brothers. He couldn't call us brothers if he never became fully human. And he's not ashamed, verse 11, not ashamed to call us brothers. Even though virtually everyone failed him at the cross, he's still not ashamed to call us brothers. We may have brothers and sisters who have failed us, but they're still our brothers and sisters. There's still a deep love there. So we may have failed God at one point, but he still loves us. So the writer now gives us three passages. Again, we're writing like a Greek here. He makes his thesis point, and then he backs it up with his citations or his sources. So all of what we just talked about, he's bringing Old Testament verses in to back that up. Verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren, my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Psalm 22, 22. Oddly enough, that's the, the Psalm 22 is the, the Psalm of the cross. It would be sung as though Jesus is hanging on the cross. Um, verse 13, 
And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children whom God has given me. He calls us children. Isaiah 18, 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord have given me are for signs and for wonders. Like, you can see how the Hebrews writer is tying this into all these concepts. Uh, the Old Testament names Messiah as having a familial relation to humanity, associating with humanity. It's not, it's not an accident that Jesus came in human form. And in the midst of the assembly, Jesus stood in and amongst us. Yes, he did. So Matthew 28, 20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we finished Matthew, Matthew left us with the idea that Jesus is still with us. He hasn't left. And then listen to this. Verse 14, Insomuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who has the power over death, that's Satan, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. This is kind of, again, this is just a great summary of our faith. Verse 14, the incarnation is real. Verse 15, he brings salvation out of death. Verse 16, he condes condescended to man and Satan no longer has rights to mankind under the law. If we've broken the law, we get to go with the breaker of the law, Satan. If we are redeemed or bought by Jesus and he didn't break the law, we can still be claimed by him and he can give a sacrifice. The power of death then only applies to sinners. You'd say, but I'm going to die. We're all going to die. And the Bible would say, no, the death is not the end of our story. And that's the doom that awaits all of us. It's the curse of humanity uh, that he's talking about there in verse 15. The release of those through fear of death were all their lifetime in bondage. The one thing humans always have to worry about is we're all going to die. Every time my knees ache when I get up, every time that little you know 40-year-old grunt comes out my mouth, Ugh, when you're standing up, I'm reminded, I'm not going to last forever. This body's falling apart. We're all going to go. I think it's harder for youth to understand that because you feel no pain as a youth. But as you grow older, you realize the end is coming. And that's a bondage to those who don't know Jesus. Thus, who, us, those of us who do know Jesus, it's like, how do I get to my grave and not complain a whole lot? Because I, I can't wait for the next level, right? I can't wait for the new existence. So through fear of death, were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Notice that the fear of death is the bondage. It's not death itself. It's the fear of it. Like, I don't even have to teach this since COVID. What destroyed our social fabric wasn't death itself. It was the fear of death. It's a far greater enemy. It causes us to do way more ridiculous things and behave in such a way that we create our own bondage. Like, everybody's housebound, so none of us die. You know what? We're all going to die. So stop housebounding. I'd like to go see the sun and hang out with people, right? That could get me in trouble in some countries. People use the fear of death to put other people into chains. I'll provide for you for the rest of your days. You'll have a better reputation. Your health will be better if you eat this snake oil. It just... It goes on and on and on. Humanity uses death and fear of death and health and prosperity to put people into bondage. If only you work harder, you'll get more of a promotion so you can have more of a retirement fund so you never have to worry about being un uncomfortable. It's the fear that's worse than the actual thing. 
try being uncomfortable and you realize, hmm, this is doable. I can be uncomfortable. And it's not those things. So as Christians, we see death as a defeated enemy, like a soundly beaten enemy. We don't have to fear it anymore. And we become suddenly immune to all of those bondage invitations. Hey, be in bondage to this. Our hope is, we don't even hope to, to beat death. Death is coming. We hope that a savior will snatch us from death. And we put our trust in God because he has never failed. His promises are unending and they've never they've never been there. Notice they use the phrase, the seed of Abraham here. This is a specifically book for Jewish Christians. At this point, most of the Christians were former Jews. So the, the again, an indication that the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles hasn't quite happened yet, right? When we read Hebrews, it seems to be a fairly early epistle. The Jewish perspective then is really then the worship of God and then the, there's this inward family of God, the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7, Know therefore that which are faith are the same, the same are the children of Abraham. So this is one of the arguments that Paul had to make in Galatians. When we say seed of Abraham, we mean everybody that's come into the church. So when we read Hebrews, we shouldn't read that that's just for, that, that also applies to us. And I think that's what Galatians 3, 7 is clarifying there a little bit. When we talk about it, that's what we mean. We mean anybody who's part of the faith, part of the family. In addition to that, like we see early on in the, in the Jewish traditions, uh, like Ittai the Gittite was a general of David's army. There were non-Jewish people that were part of the family of Israel very early on. And that was something that had kind of gone away by the first century. But at least in the Bible, the seed of Abraham's anybody in the household. So 16, 17 and 18 bring home the introduction of the book. It's a succinct summary of why the gospel matters. So you can read the whole book of Matthew. This is why it should matter. Verse 17, Therefore, in all things he has made, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. That's why the gospel matters. Jesus is there for us. The writer's emphasizing this whole start of the book is that Jesus is all-powerful, he's been wholly humbled, and he's conquered sin and death. He made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made into the likeness of a man. Philippians 2.7. He's more than a messenger and an angel, chapter 1. He's so much more than a human being, chapter 2 but a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He takes the role of high priest. He's the intercessor between us and God. All previous high priests were sinful humans, and they have all died. The high priest Caiaphas tore his robes, excusing himself from the office. Not only that, he was a murderer and a liar. Right? So Caiaphas is in it. The high priest would wear the names of Israel on their shoulders and on their chest, showing responsibility and a heart for the people of Israel. So as Jesus does this, he's both deity and a human king, the book of Matthew, and now with Hebrews, he's also our high priest. He's carrying the burden of our sin on his shoulders with the cross, and he wears the burden of our souls on his heart, and he takes us with us. This is why the Catholics have the little heart image when they do pictures of Jesus, and I always thought that was the most surgical-looking icon ever but this is where that heart comes from he has a heart for humanity and that's what that means 
So a faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Everything we do when we deal with God, we do it through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. And the reason is because we go through a high priest. That's the Old Testament law. In other words, the Old Testament hasn't changed one bit. But our high priest has changed and it changes the whole relationship. To make a propitiation for the sins of the people. I remember when I first heard the word propitiation, I thought that was a weird Christian word. And then I looked it up. No, it just means to replace something with something else. He became the replacement for our sins. Literally substituting himself for our sacrifice. So our sacrifice is already given. He himself suffered, verse 18. That's an interesting in the Greek because they use Hebrew emphasis with Greek words. So the Greek is pasho autos pashos. And if you come to the, New, the Old Testament Bible studies, Hebrews would often double a word to add emphasis. Like we say, yeah, yeah, and we add emphasis. I don't know. There's probably better examples. Dog, dog. We say it twice and we add emphasis. Where is the dog? Oh, he's sleeping. They're doing the same thing with he himself suffered. Pashos, autos, pashos. In the English, a literal translation would be sufferer, he suffered. He suffered, suffered. And he did it for us. Odd, odd turn of phrase in any language, but it does two things. It puts the verb on both sides of the noun. He himself is God Jesus. God, he suffered. Fully God, fully man. Deity with a unity in itself. The verber is he might be a way you would say that sentence. Right? The one who does some things is the something who did. So it's a really beautiful way to use the language that, that actually makes a point in and of itself. It adds emphasis on the actual suffering, not the spiritual suffering, but the in-the-flesh suffering. Sufferer, he suffered. He did all the suffering. He was really tempted. He really suffered. He went through it. And notice that the suffering there, he himself has suffered. It was an issue for Jesus because he was in the flesh. He struggled with it his whole life, not just in the wilderness. It was always there, being tempted. Jesus was suffered probably more temptation than we do. When we suffer temptation, as the temptation increases, we just give into it and we're released from it, right? Okay, I'm just going to give into the temptation and then we don't struggle with it anymore. Jesus never gave into it. So how great was his temptation as he went through his life? Where there's always that temptation and it builds and he never gives into it. The evil just don't suffer from temptation because they give into it. We Christians, we start to suffer with temptation because we try not to give into it. And as we do that, we're suffering with and like Christ in order to do it. In that sense, our desire to be pure, holy, and righteous because we love God is actually the struggle we partake in with Jesus. We try not to sin. Oh, but I sin and I screw up all the time. Are you happy you did? No, I'm miserable. Good. That's called the Holy Spirit. You're miserable with your sin because God loves you. If you're happy with your sin, you're probably not saved. But that thing in us that works like that, it's beautiful. We're not above our master. Jesus was tempted and so are we. It's the same thing. So this is the last line that's given in this chapter is just an explosion. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Okay, we talked about God and Jesus. In that line alone, Jesus who is at the right hand of God according to Hebrews is able to aid those who are tempted. He has an active presence on this planet with us. Think of that for just a second. What does that imply? 
I'm, I'm struggling with temptation. I'm calling up Tom saying, Tom, I'm struggling with temptation. Can you pray for me? We're all working on things. We're praying about it. We're trying to get through life together. And Jesus is aiding us in that process. <coughs> Aid is an, active, an example of how to handle it. Jesus gave us the example in the Gospels. Aid also implies an active spiritual assistance or another aspect of God in and of itself that we get aid from the helper. This is huge. The helper is the Holy Spirit. So light bulb gives light as God. The beams of the light bulb emanate God. That's Jesus. We're still talking about the same light. But what happens when the light hits my skin? And, I, and it's been a beautiful weather out. But when I go out in the weather, I can see a sun. I can't look at it. It's too much for me to handle. I think that's an image of God. God put it there for a reason. I can see light all over the place that's also the sun, but it illuminates everything just like Jesus does. But then you get the impact of the light. Put your skin in the light and wait for your skin to warm up. Do I see the light beam hitting my skin? No. I see everything illuminated by the light, but I can feel the warmth on my skin. Some people call this holy goosebumps, maybe. But when that light hits my skin, it actually has a physical reaction and it causes warmth to happen. That's the sp- it's the same God. It's the same sun giving us that light, illumination, but also when it hits us, it does something. And I just, again, I'm going to read just scriptures on this. This is all over the early church. They understood this idea, I think, better than we do. John 14, 26. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, same word, will the, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things I said to you. Wait, so when we remember Bible verses in a conversation, that's the warmth of the light hitting our skin. The primary aid that we get in learning God's word and then remembering it later, like first of all, you got to come to church to hear God's word or do Bible study on your own to hear God's word. But then when you're out living your life and you remember things, that's the Holy Spirit doing that for you. In other words, in the flesh, we don't remember the scriptures. I don't know about you, but before I got believed, I tried to take a shot at reading the Bible a couple times before I was a believer. And it, it really, after like the first few stories in Genesis, it starts to read like gobbledygook. I can't even read it. And then I got saved and I started opening the pages and like Hebrews made sense to me all of a sudden. Like It's like a veil comes off your eyes and you can understand it. It's the primary aid we get in Bible study. Here's another one, Mark 13, 11. When they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Luke says, Luke in that same passage says that the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. So not only is it in our interaction with God's word, it's also an interaction that we know the right thing to say at the right time with the right people. We have some wisdom in that because we're listening to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit isn't primarily about, um, I think the world or an apostate church has turned the Holy Spirit into like shaking in the aisles and bouncing up and down and chaos and things like that. Grant's just giggling over there. Um, It's not about convulsions and prophecy and healing as much as when we read the Bible, it's about remembering verses from the Bible. It's about understanding what to say when you're there and not having to worry about it. Uh, it, It's about the gifts of the Spirit that we get to minister to the church and to bring new people into the body. 
Uh, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We actually ask for the Holy Spirit. So if we're not asking for it, why would we get it? We have to actually ask, Lord, give me the right thing to say. Lord, help me understand this Bible passage. Lord, help me how to, how to act out the gifts that you've given me to serve the church. If you never ask the Lord for that, you will never be revealed what those things are. Because God's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself. And it's such a powerful gift. Tie this to the rest of what we read in Hebrews. If Jesus is God's right hand with unlimited power and authority over everything, and all we need to do is ask for help to do anything, then suddenly that gives a, a, should shed a light on when Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, if you ask that mountain to move, it'll move. And it start, you start to get the sense that we're offered an aid or a helper in everything we do in life, and it never ends. The power and the, the access to that power never ends. Acts 1.8, you shall receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, all Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When we witness and talk to other people, it's the Holy Spirit that talks through us. Woo. This is why I avoid strategies. Sorry. I do, right? The Holy Spirit works through us. At least that's what the Bible tells me it does. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that helps me to be witnesses. If I love the Lord and I'm in a healthy fellowship and there are things happening like our cool baptism yesterday, I should be able to tell people about what's going on and the Lord just gives me a joy to tell and share that with people and lure people into fellowship and into discipleship and into teaching. So there's a great commission to make disciples, Matthew 8, 19, Matthew 28, 19, we just did this last week. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Same being. Teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. He's never left. We can go out and we can feel the warmth of the sun on our skin. We can pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and we can feel the effects of the Holy Spirit on our life. I love it when people come to Bible study for a few months and they're like, I don't even know what to say, but I just, it's changing me. It's doing something. And it's like, no, it, it's, that's the Holy Spirit working in your life. The Holy Spirit's not like a demon. It's not a, a, an overwhelming of the human being. It's a partnership with the human being. And suddenly we realize we're not, we're winning our battles with temptation. That's the Holy Spirit. We're actually enjoying and understanding what we read in the Bible. That's the Holy Spirit. The right things are coming to mind when we talk to unbelievers. That's the Holy Spirit. We actually have a heart to share with unbelievers. That's the Holy Spirit. And we see new people coming into the kingdom. Our mission then is to teach people. So we have a crisis in the church in that we have millions of Christians that say these, okay, I'm just going to, these idiotic things that have no root in the scriptures. Well, I'm not sure what to say to people when I talk to them. That's idiotic. Are you saved? Tell them about that. If you learned enough to become a Christian, you know enough to share with other people, period. And you're going to bless people when you do. Well, I don't know the word well enough to quote it. Well, I, I think the Holy Spirit brings those things to mind when you're talking to people. So be in the word as much as you can, and the verses will come to mind when they need to. You will start to remember verses that speak to your heart, and you'll repeat them, and they'll come up. Or I have to be nice to people and let my light shine, okay? This is now going to be my pet peeve right? I just need to be a nice person. I know non-believers that are nice people. They don't, they're not believers and they wouldn't claim to be, but they're very nice people. Oh, you can work with them and I'm friends with these people. 
Niceness is not what salvation is all about, right? Salvation is about becoming a servant of a new kingdom with a new God that's at the head of your life. We take our walking orders from Jesus, period. And I hope we're nice too. Like I'm not being mean to nice people. Like I hope we're also nice, but if we never use our mouths to talk about our faith, then we're just a, a secular nice person to everybody we know. And it never stands out. I don't want to judge people, okay? This one's really popular with the college, high school students. We can't judge anybody. Well, I don't judge people. The Bible says that's right and wrong. That's not my judgment. That's God's judgment. And I'm a witness to a living God that says that thing is wrong. Judgment is like if I want to wear the blue shirt or the red shirt, right? That's like a, a decision that I make that is not clearly outlined in the Bible. God asks us to use our judgment. Wear the blue shirt, right? But that's a judgment that I make as things that aren't clearly identified in the Bible. But when I follow the Lord and obey him, that's judgments that are already made by a living God that says that is wrong and this is right. So we are followers in those things. We're not judgmental in those things. And we don't love people when we let them do bad things and we don't say anything about it. Or, <laughs> all right, this won't be convicting because this was me. I'm not sure I can lead a Bible study. I don't know enough. That's a tough one. Because even as Christians, we believe in the Lord, but we don't heed what the Lord says. We're supposed to be teachers. We're supposed to be ready to teach. Like if you've read it and you walk out of here understanding Hebrews 1 and 2 pretty well, then do the research, put your notes together, you should be able to teach it. Or you should be able to just read it with people and say, all right, I think this means that, and I think that means that. Or you say the greatest thing in the world, I don't know. I'll look it up, and I'll figure it out, and I'll get back to you on that one. Good question. But those kinds of things are things that keep us away from this core idea at the end of this chapter. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Either we have a helper in the Holy Spirit or we don't. So if we do, then, then that changes everything. Then we're shown this to happen, literally. Uh, Peter, amazingly, in Acts 4.8, gets up in front of a whole group of people, and it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, elders of Israel, he goes on to give one of the greatest speeches Christianity's ever heard. But did he prepare it? Did he organize it? Or did he just love his Lord and live a life to where he could just talk about it from his heart? This is who I am. Hebrews returns to this theme in chapter 5. We'll come back to this idea in chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, for you've come to need milk and not solid food. And he's talking to believers that have been believers, a lot of them, for 20 years. It's like, how long do you need to keep hearing what God's taught before you're ready to share it with people? What does it take? And that's a... That's the part that we tend to skip when we don't want to hear about it because we got life that we want to live and these opportunities. So assuming that these are Christians that he's writing to, uh, that's a huge assumption when we talk to people today. Most people haven't read the Bible, even Christians. I mean, so even that assumption that we're talking to other people that have read the word. But that said, God promises to aid us in the reading of the word, to aid us in remembering what we have heard. So we go through the week remembering what we've heard in the word. And the good news is we don't do it alone. We have a helper to do all of this. The even better news is that the Holy Spirit is promised to aid us. So either God keeps his promises or he doesn't. So either he's there for us or he's not. So <laughs> as we go on with the rest of Hebrews, final warning today is you got to put on your big boy pants and your big girl pants because it's really convicting. And Hebrews is going to lay it on thick in the next few weeks because we're going to go about 10, 12 chapters of 
this is where Christians fall short. This is the stuff we miss the boat on. And it was already an issue 20, 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Why would we think it's not an issue today? So that said, I'll try to end on a joyful note every week. And the joyful note this week is we have a Savior that is greater than the angels that has come to call us brothers and sisters. That's a God who loves us. So just keep that thought in mind as that God who loves us gives us pretty stern words on how to live our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for Hebrews and the, the mysterious writers of Hebrews. Uh, what they're saying is uh, tied into the scriptures. Uh, it's the kind of teaching they heard in the first century. And Lord, they didn't, they didn't mince words in the first century. Uh, it was life or death for those folks. And it was, uh, it was, they were actively writing to each other to encourage and admonish each other. It sounds harsh, but we know, Lord, that you're speaking. Your Holy Spirit is telling them what to write to. And you were a helper to when they wrote this book. And, uh, and you write this because you love us. And you want us to hear, you tell us these things and discipline us. Because like a good father, you want us to be disciplined and ready. And to have great joy and abundance and fruit in our Christian walk. So help us to do that, Lord. Um, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit is made manifest to everybody in this room, everybody listening to this. Lord, that as we go through our day and our week, uh, the words of Hebrews come to mind. The lessons we've talked about this morning are present with us, and we know that that's you. That's the light shining. Uh, it's the warmth on our skin as the Holy Spirit just is in our life, and we can feel it, and we know it, and there's no doubt around it. Lord, bring Bible verses to mind in every situation this week. Lord, give us hope and encouragement when we feel down. As we meet each person as we leave here today and we go out into the mission field, Lord, may every word out of our mouth be like an ambassador speaking for the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.